If you have your Bible with you, if you turn to the Gospel of Matthew tonight, Matthew chapter 8 is where we find ourselves this evening. Matthew chapter 8. And then we're going to just uh, move on a little bit and look in Luke chapter 9. Matthew chapter 8, uh, just a few verses, uh, beginning in verse 19. We'll read down to verse 22. And then we're going to skip to Luke's Gospel and chapter 9. And really going down to the very tail end of that chapter to verses 61 and 62. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 19. It says, And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, But the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury the dead. And then if you would look to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and verse 61, and this is really a continuation of the same account, except Luke gives a third detail of another individual who comes at the same time as these previous two. And it says this in verse 61, And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We trust the Lord that is blessing to the reading of his precious word. We're living in a very strange world, I think you'll agree. We're living in a very strange time, and it's a time that is often uh, very much dominated by the culture of celebrity, and that has brought its own interesting phenomenon in the sense that the world is full of wannabes, people who want to be famous. Uh, people who want to be pop stars or music stars or people who want to become celebrities or who want to be admired on the world stage. And often, you know, they are aspiring musicians or performing artists or uh, comedians of some kind. But also there's people who want to be famous for nothing more than being famous. Well, in our message tonight, we encounter three wannabe Christians. That's what I refer to these three characters as. They're wannabe Christians. Here are men who came apparently surrendering to the Lord Jesus, wanting to follow him. But instead of being embraced and accepted by the Lord, were actually dismissed and discouraged from following the Lord with some very hard sayings. Now, the Lord Jesus had just completed his sermon on the mount. He had come down uh, from that mount. He had uh, descended into the valley below. He uh, was on his way, made his way to Capernaum, where he lived. And uh, we believe he lived in Peter's house. And en route, he met a leper, and uh, he healed that leper. And then he healed a centurion servant. He also healed Peter's mother-in-law, and he healed many others beside. And so his Presence was really a natural attraction. People were drawn to this phenomenon of this preacher, healer, who had come into their midst. And there's an old saying, you know, that says this, that a crowd draws a crowd. And that's true. If you have any gathering of people, you'll always add to it. 
Uh, you, you've probably experienced that yourself. Maybe you've gone into one of the big cities and you've seen a, a crowd of people gathered around a busker. And, and what do you do? You don't just pass by. You look over the heads of others to see what's being done or what's being sung or what's being said. And you want to be part of the crowd. And so it was no different with the Lord Jesus. He couldn't get any rest anywhere he went because he was followed by the masses and people were always trying to get a hold of him and see him and hear what he had uh, to say. But unlike modern celebrities, Jesus wasn't particularly enamored with all of this attention. He was less uh, interested than perhaps we might think he, uh, he would have been. Uh, or should have been perhaps. If you look uh, back in Matthew's Gospel in verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart onto the other side. So he didn't just embrace all these people coming. He says, let's go to the other side. Let's go to a place where we can get some uh, peace and quiet, as it were. And so he, uh, he uh, took this decision uh, and in a careful and, and uh, in a meditative way, he decides to make this move across the lake of Galilee to the eastern side, to Gadara. And uh, yet with all, even there, people wanted to follow him. They would, have to, uh, they would want to have something to do with him. And uh, they must determine then how they're going to get there and to make their way to where he was. So he makes this commandment to depart to the other side. And, and whilst they're readying their craft, the Lord conducts these three conversations with three wannabe Christians, three very different men. And every one of these men said that they would follow the Lord except for, or, 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 or there was some problem, there was some issue whereby they couldn't ultimately follow him. Well, I wonder tonight, have you thought about becoming a Christian? Have you considered the possibility of trusting the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Maybe you say, well, I would really like to follow Jesus. I would like to have the faith of those in this congregation who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. I would want to be a follower of Christ. Well, if that's the way you are tonight, I want you to listen particularly carefully. Because these three men set for us perhaps something of a negative example in conversion and uh, the first man, he was stumbled, as indeed all three were. But the first man was stumbled by expectation. Let's go back there in Matthew chapter 8. and verse 19, it says, A certain scribe came and said unto him, said unto Jesus, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where or nowhere to lay his head. So we're introduced to this man by means of his occupation. He was a scribe. I remember many years ago listening uh, to Radio Ulster and they were playing their, uh, their Sunday service. You know how they uh, would broadcast Sunday services around various churches. And I was driving to a church somewhere and I was listening to the Sunday service uh, on the radio in my car as I was driving along. And uh, I won't tell you which church it was. Uh, but it was a church in Lisburn area, and uh, the, the minister was conducting the service, and he said, we will now ask Mr. So-and-so, who is by occupation an accountant, to lead us to the Lord in prayer. And I remember thinking, well, what's his occupation got to do with it? 
I wondered what he would have said if his occupation had been a maggot farmer or something else. Uh, would he have said, we want to invite Mr. So-and-so, who is by occupation a maggot farmer, to come and open his prayer? You know, that, that was such a strange thing to say, to introduce somebody by means of their occupation. But the Bible introduces this man by means of his occupation. He was a scribe. That is, he was a Bible teacher. And a very good Bible teacher as regards the Jewish people would have been concerned. He was likely a Pharisee. He no doubt had uh, been among the number present uh, with Jesus on the mount when he taught. He was impressed, especially uh, not only by his teaching, but by the miracles he would have performed. And if anybody claimed to be the Messiah and had some credentials to back it up, well, surely this man, Jesus, was that man. And so he thought he would throw in his lot with him. He said, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. In other words, he wanted to join them in that boat crossing the Galilee to the eastern side. Now, that boat at that moment in time contained the whole kingdom of of God. In it was Jesus and his 12 disciples. So when this man came and asked to join him, to go with him, he was really committing himself to discipleship, to following the Lord. He was saying, Lord, I want to follow you. Now that's interesting because you think to yourself, well, this is a, a, a prominent figure in that Jewish community. He was an educated figure. He was a religious figure. He was someone who understood Jewish law. He was, uh, he was a teacher of the law, uh, a scribe no less. You have to ask yourself, well, why would a man like this, a, a scholar, a man of learning, a man of letters, want to identify with someone who is apparently an untrained rabbi who has a bunch of fishermen as his disciples? Uh, you know, uh, here's a man that, you know, is a teacher of the law in his own right, and yet he seems willing to sit at the feet of Jesus. You know what would happen in most churches the day of a fellow like that came along? We throw out the red carpet for him. We'd say, well, look at this. We've got somebody here who's been to Bible college. They've got several degrees. They know the Bible from back to front. Here's a fellow who can split hairs on theology. Here's a man who can speak Greek and speak Hebrew. Here's a man who knows the scriptures. Maybe we should have him preach for us. Maybe he could come and, and take, a, take a Bible class or he could preach when the pastor is not here. Or maybe he could even preach instead of the pastor. But you know what? The Lord Jesus was unmoved by this man's status. He's unmoved by academia as he is by crowds. And he saw the way to this man's heart. You see, here's the thing. The Lord is always interested in the heart. He's not concerned about your degrees. He's not concerned about your education. He's not concerned about your reputation. He's not concerned about your standing. He's always only ever concerned about your heart. What about your heart tonight? Is it right with God? Is your heart right with God? You see, this fellow looked at Jesus and he looked at this rather ragtag group of followers of his and he probably thought to himself, well, those guys, you know, they're uneducated, they're unlearned. That's how they were described later on, as unlearned men. He probably thought to himself, well, you know, these fellas don't deserve 
a, a preacher like Jesus. They don't deserve a, a rabbi like Jesus. You know, what Jesus needs here is a little kudos. He needs a, he needs a little weight to this group. He needs somebody with a little bit of know-how. He needs somebody who will, who will give a measure of, of strength to, to this band of people that will make him look more earnest, more serious as a, as a leader. And so he throws in his lot, as it were, with Jesus. He's motivated. By the excitement of the moment, he's motivated because he realizes that Jesus is the Messiah and that, that the kingdom must surely be coming. And he's going to set up this messianic kingdom which was promised in the Old Testament, which he would have been familiar with. And he's thinking to himself, I'll get in on the ground floor here. I'll come in and I'll, I'll be part of this. And when the kingdom materializes, well, guess what? I'll be, have jockeyed myself into position and I'll be right there to to take up a a leading post in the coming kingdom. You see, his commitment has an air of self-importance about it. He's pretty sure of himself. He says, I will follow you wheresoever I go. You are so blessed to have me. Did you ever meet somebody like that? Sometimes we even think that way. You know, maybe you've got a friend or a relative and they're very gifted. Maybe they're a great musician or maybe they've got a lovely personality. Maybe they've, uh, you know, maybe they've got a great mind for organization or something along that line. And you think to yourself, man, if they would become a Christian, if they become a Christian and join our church, what a difference they would make. i got news for you. They'll make no difference whatsoever. Because the thing that makes a church great is not this fellow or that fellow. The thing that makes a church great is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's important. But this fellow came with an air of importance and self-belief. And that his motives were in doubt is clear by Jesus' response to him. Jesus didn't say, yes, come ahead. I'm very glad to have you. Notice what he says. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, well, he is nowhere to lay his head. You see, he was looking to follow Jesus right into the kingdom. He was looking to share in his reign. But Jesus wanted him to understand, and I want you to understand tonight, that when you choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not to be for earthly glory. You're going to rather share somewhat in the earthly suffering. When you become a Christian, the world doesn't applaud you. The world is not lining up to slap you in the back and say, you did a good thing there. No, the world is set up to destroy you and to discourage you and to dishearten you. There's no golden ticketed Wonka bar awaiting any would-be disciple coming to the Lord. There's hardship and there's sacrifice when you become a Christian. You know, I have, and I don't say this boastfully, but when I became a Christian as a teenager, I've given my whole life to serving the Lord Jesus. There used to be a man in the church in Milton. He was a businessman. He, he owned half the town of Leek. Very well, wealthy man in many respects. And he used to say to me, David, he says, you know, if you'd have went in the business, you'd have been a millionaire. How's that for a word of discouragement, eh? He'd say, I'd employ you in a shop. He says, I would put you in my shop floor. He says, you could sell carpets. That's what he did. He was a carpet, he owned a carpet business. He says, you would sell more carpets than anybody. He says, you'd have been very successful. But you know what? That's not important to me. 
Because when I was a young fellow, I gave my heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I committed myself to serve him. And that's a life of sacrifice. That's a life of surrender. And so when I call you tonight to trust in the Lord Jesus, I want you to go into this with your eyes open. I don't want you to go in there thinking that you've won the prize, that you're somehow going to have this lovely, easy life, that life's going to be wonderful for you from here on out. No, there's going to be difficulties and hardship, and people are going to oppose you, and people are going to get in your face, and people are going to criticize you, and people are going to critique your life. I'm just being honest with you. You see, of the 12 men who went with Jesus on the boat that day, get this, of the 12 men who stepped onto the boat with Jesus that day, 10 of them lost their lives serving him. 10 of them were martyred. 10 of them died horrible deaths, crucified and skewered and and all kinds of terrible things happened to them. The only two that didn't have something terrible to happen to them was Judas, and of course he wasn't a true disciple. And John, who died on his old age, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. But the other ten didn't make it the old age. The other ten were put to early deaths. And so Jesus is emphasizing to this man the cost of discipleship. He says the foxes have holes, the birds have air of the net, have, have the birds of the air have nests. He says everybody else is, is landed, everybody else is well catered for in this world. But he says the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. Now, do you think that the servant is going to be greater than his master? You think it's not going to be hard for you? That nobody's going to make it difficult for you? You see, he's emphasizing the cost of discipleship. And his reply was intended neither to encourage or discourage the scribe. It was simply designed to help him count the cost of followership. You see, Jesus was busily traveling from one place to another as an itinerant preacher and teacher. He had no regular home. When he came to Capernaum, he dwelt with Peter and Peter's wife and her mother. You know, that's, that was the life that he lived. There was no perks in following Jesus the side of glory. It costs to follow Christ. I want you to get that. It costs. You know, inquirers like this fellow should be warned. You know, we've uh, bought as a society into easy believism. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Just uh, repeat after me this little prayer, you know, A, B, C, repeat after me, and you'll be saved. And, you know, here's the thing. We do everything we can to smooth the way for people, to say that life will be, it's an easy decision, and it's a simple decision, and, and you know, you just got to take this decision, and your life's going to be so much better. I'm telling you, it's not always the case. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, said this, nothing, in fact, has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is uh, willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of his experience. It has, painfully, it has been painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength and that there may be great quantity of mere outward religion while there is very little of real grace. Jesus was no easy believist. He wanted those inquiring to know what it meant to be a follower of his. So the first man was stumbled because of his expectation. 
The second man must stumble because of procrastination. Look in verse 21 and 22 of Matthew chapter 8. And another of his disciples, that is those who were following him as part of the crowd, and another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me or allow me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Now, if the first man was too quick when he promised wholehearted loyalty, the second man, this second follower, was too slow. He wanted to bury his father. Now, at first glance, that seems like a very reasonable request, does it not? I mean, if somebody in our congregation had suffered a bereavement and we had something on and they came and they said, Pastor, I'd like to come, but uh, listen, I've got to go to my father's funeral well, of course, we'd understand that. And we'd say, well, for sure, you've got to be at your father's funeral. We completely understand that. That's the right thing uh, to do. So it seems at first glance to be a reasonable request. But here's the problem here. His father wasn't actually dead. You see, it was a son's responsibility to bury his father on the day that he died. And then he would mourn for him 30 days in all whilst he settled the estate. And so if this man had been recently bereaved, he actually would have been addressing the issues surrounding his father's passing. He would have attended the funeral and the burial already, and he would be attending to the estate. He wouldn't be following the crowd as he was. So this father, his father, was alive and well. And what this man was doing when he said, let me bury my father, is this. He was awaiting his inheritance. He was saying, when my dad dies, I have some money coming to me, and then I'll come and follow you. You see, he was putting the thing on the long finger. Let me tell you, the devil will always get you to put the decision to trust Christ on the long finger. He'll always say, not today. You don't want to do that today. Listen, there's other things for you to do. Do it tomorrow. Do it next week. Do it when you're older. Do it when you're on your deathbed. You know, live your life to the full and, and then do it. You know, here's a man, his, his father was alive. And, and friends, this thing, this, never, this thing of salvation never works this way. You know, you gamble with eternity when you put the Lord Jesus on hold. He's calling you to follow him as a matter of urgency. He's calling you to put your trust in him even this very night. He's calling you even now to say, I will follow Jesus. I will surrender to him, whatever the cost, whatever the suffering, whatever the pain, because he died for me. I will live for him. I'm going to follow him. The writer of Hebrews says this, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The book of Proverbs says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Don't put it on, a, on hold. Don't put the Lord on the long finger. Listen, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near, says the prophet Isaiah. He says you need to respond to Christ as a matter of urgency. So what this man was guilty of was allowing the world and the things of the world to crowd out the things of God. I wonder, are you guilty of that this evening? I wonder, is your head so full of the world that there's no room for the Lord Jesus Christ? I wonder tonight, are the things of the world squashing out the things of God? If so, Jesus says, listen, let the dead bury the dead. 
In other words, he, he wasn't being callous, he wasn't being unkind, but he was saying, let the spiritually dead, those who are dead and trespasses and sins, those who don't belong to me, those who are worldly, let them care about worldly things. Let them take care of the temporal and you address and take care of the eternal. Let me tell you something, friends. All the money in the world, all the money in the world is not worth going to hell for. It's not. That's why Jesus said, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? How would you be advantaged if you owned everything there is to own and died in your sin and were cast into a lost eternity? You know, it would be a tragedy. You know, if you consider the man of Luke chapter 16, a man who was a wealthy man, the Bible describes him as a rich man, and he dies in his sins, and he's buried, and he winds up uh, on the wrong side of the fence in eternity. He winds up in hell instead of paradise. And here's what is said to him in the midst of this spiritual tragedy. It says, And it came to pass, the beggar died, was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and sees Abraham, who was saved afar off, and Lazarus, who was saved in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy, and sent Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But listen to what Abraham says. Abraham said, Son, Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Notice how this man's priorities changed when he went out into eternity in a lost condition. This man who enjoyed the finest of meals, who sat in Michelin star restaurants, this man who drank the best of Israel's wine, suddenly will settle for just a drop of water on his tormented tongue to bring him just a little bit of relief. My friends, listen to me. This second man who said, suffer me first to go and bury my father, he didn't have his priorities right. He was holding out for time, for the things of this world, and he should have been taking care of eternity. Is that you? Is that you? Now go with me to Luke chapter 9. We'll look at this third individual. In Luke's gospel in chapter 9. If the first man stumbled because of his expectations. And the second man stumbled because of procrastination. The third man stumbled because of his inclination. Look in the gospel of Luke chapter 9 and verse 61. And another said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto them, No man, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, here's what I want you to notice in this verse, verse 61. I want you to notice the word first. Let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. There was his priority. He was making a condition 
upon his commitment. When you say, let me do this first, here's what you're doing. You're making God second. And let me tell you something. God never settles for second. God is a jealous God. That's how he reveals himself in the Bible. Not an envious God, but a jealous God. And he will never settle for second. He'll never be runner-up in anybody's life. He's never going to take second place. He's never going to play second fiddle to what's going on in other areas of your life. And in some ways, when you read this account, it seems that this man is not much different from the first man, or from the last man, rather, except in this case, he simply wanted to go and say goodbye to his loved ones. And again, that doesn't seem like such a bad thing to do, does it? There's nothing wrong with that per se. Elisha did that when he was replacing Elijah. He wanted to go and kiss his mother and father, and Elijah let him go and kiss his mother and father, and then he followed after the prophet. Are we saying that Jesus was less merciful? than Elijah, that he was less gracious than Elijah, that he was less accommodating than Elijah. You know, a goodbye to his parents, well, it would only have taken a few minutes, whereas burying a father would have taken an indefinite time. And perhaps he he thought, well, if Elijah would permit Elijah to say farewell to his parents, Jesus will allow me to say farewell to my parents. Yet even this concession was not one that Jesus would grant. Why? Because following Jesus is the most important thing in the world. It is the singular most important thing that anybody can do and it should be at the top of your priorities, not second to your priorities. Everything else in life revolves around him. You see, you may be tempted to say, well, you know, I'd like to be a Christian, but, you know, I've got my career to think of and maybe if I give my attention to my work and to my job and I move up the ladder and do well and buy a nice house and drive a nice car and enjoy nice holidays, then I'll come to Christ. That's not the way this thing works. You see, your career is not your own. Your time is not your own. You may say, well, you know, I'm going to just live out my days. I'm young. I'm a young person. I don't have to think about these things. I can do this when I'm old. I can do this you know, as, as my life is nearing its end, then I can focus on the things of God. You see what you're doing? You're putting Christ second. Your time is not your own. You, you know, and as, if you're a Christian, your marriage belongs to him. Your home belongs to him. Uh, your career belongs to him. Your family life must be centered on him. Do you want to know how demanding the Lord Jesus Christ is? Look with me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. And, and I want to pick up reading in verse 34 of this chapter. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Now, it's not that I'm wanting, telling you that salvation is difficult. It's not difficult. It's simple to be saved. But I don't want want you to think for one moment that it's easy, that it's an easy road, that by trusting Christ somehow or other, all my life is just going to work out and it's going to be a bed of roses thereafter. No, that's not it at all. Look in verse 34. The Lord Jesus says this, think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I come not to send peace, but a sword. Uh-oh. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Stop there. Here's what the Lord Jesus says. He says, if I come into your life, I'm going to be a source of division. I'm going to be a, a matter of controversy in your home life. I'm going to be a problem between you and your parents. I'm going to be a problem between you and your spouse. I'm going to be a problem between you and your brother or you and your sister. Do you know what? That's the truth. Jesus wasn't being hard. He's stating the truth. You know, I got saved. Uh, listen, uh, there were people in my family who weren't particularly excited about it. There were people in my family who uh, took exception to it. There were people in my family who opposed the decision. We were just talking a few moments ago as we were praying prior to the service about baptism. And, and I was saying how that, uh, you know, when I went to be baptized, my mother was very angry about it. She says, you've already been baptized, referring to christening. She says, you were christened as a baby. You don't need to be baptized. And then she gets angry with the church. I don't know what that lot are thinking. How can you be baptized again? Well, that's what you can expect. That's what Jesus said would happen. A man's foe shall be there of his own household. And he goes on and says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You see, here's the decision I had to take in that moment. Who was going to have my first love? Should I give my devotion and my commitment to my own mother who brought me into this world? Or should I give my devotion and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life a ransom for me in Calvary's cross? There was a conflict here. And I took a decision as a young man and I said, listen, if the Lord Jesus wants me to be baptized, I'll be baptized. Whether my mother likes it or not. And the same is true of salvation. You see, your mother may not like it. Your brother may not like it. Your father may oppose it. Your sister may have something to say about it. Your sons or daughters may argue with you concerning it. Listen, there's other people who want to stand in your way. But you're going to have to decide, who's the most important here? Those folks whom you love and who love you for sure were the one who loved you enough to lay down his life for you. Who's going to have the preeminence? Who's going to have the number one spot in your life? You see, the Lord goes on, he says this, verse 38. He that taketh not his cross, the cross is an instrument of death. It's not just a piece of jewelry, it's not just a piece of decor, it's not an ornamentation, it's an instrument of death. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. And on he goes. But I want you to get this. Everything must be yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to be saved, you have to come and yield your heart and life to him and say, Lord, you're going to have first place. You're going to be my savior. And it's all or nothing. Now, that's not to say that there isn't time for home or family or work or recreation. Of course there is. There's time for those things. But all of it should be controlled by the priority of Christ. And some of you sitting here are not ready for that kind of commitment. But then I think Jesus secondly disallowed this man because he saw that he would go home 
to say goodbye to his parents and that he would then be subject to emotional appeal not to follow Jesus. Can I say something to you tonight? And I said respectfully, you should never consult earthly friends or family about the matter of salvation if they're unsaved. You should never consult with unsaved friends or family about the matter of salvation. Never. You shouldn't allow worldly friends or family to give you counsel whether to become a Christian or not. Again, when I was thinking about conversion, when I was thinking about coming to Christ, and I was struggling with that, and I was battling with that, I thought I was going to ask my friends what they thought. And so I sat them down, one by one at various times, and I said to them, you know, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. What do you think? One fellow says, you don't want to, yeah? See, you're your mind. He says, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. I thought, well, he must be an expert on the Bible. He must have read the Bible. I didn't know he was a theologian. It just seemed like he was a drunk to me. But nevertheless, apparently he reads the Bible. Turned out he hadn't read the Bible. But he seemed to be an expert on it at the time. Another fellow says to me, you know what? You don't want to do that. He says, if you read the Bible, you'll go mad. You'll go crazy. You'll lose your mind. People who read their Bible lose their mind. So that makes this place not a church but an asylum. You people are mentally ill. At least that was the perceived wisdom. That was, that's what he said. Another fellow says to me, David, you're out of your head, son. He says, listen, you become a Christian. You're going to be one of those goody two-shoes. You know, what are you going to do about all the parties and the, and the drink and the girls and, and all the things that, that we enjoy together? All of that's going to have to go. You don't want to do that. Nobody but nobody said, David, that's a great idea. That's exactly what you need. You see, all the advice I got was contrary uh, to the thing that I needed to do. And uh, God and his word, friends, needs to be obeyed above man. And those who hear the invitation of salvation uh, must resolve at once to seek Christ and give themselves to his service. You know what this fellow's problem was? He came with reservations. He was what we might call a hokey-cokey convert. Remember the hokey-cokey when, back in the, I guess, if some of you will not remember this. Some are smiling and others are going, what in the world is the hokey-cokey? Well, the hokey-cokey was a party dance. It's very simple. Put your left leg in, your left leg out, in, out, in, out, shake it all about. You do the hokey-cokey and you turn around. That's what it's all about. It's as simple as that. And that's where this fellow was. He says, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Left leg in. But let me go and first uh, say goodbye to my parents. Right leg out. In, out, in, out. And then he turned it all about. And the Lord says, you're not going to follow me. You're going to follow the crowd. You're going to follow your family. You're going to follow your own way. You're not ready to be a disciple of mine. Hokey cokey convert. Notice what Jesus says to him in verse 62 of Luke chapter 9. He says, No man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom 
of God. Now to put your hand to the plow was a proverbial expression of that time that signified undertaking your own business. He might say you put your nose to the, to the grind wheel. The grindstone. They put their hand to the plow. And in order that a plowman might complete his work, he had to look forward all the time. Uh, you folks are from a, a farming community. You know that a plowman can't afford to take his eye off the furrow. He's got to keep his eye on the pathway in front of him. It's a bit like if you ever had the opportunity on holiday to steer a canal boat down a canal. A canal is a narrow strip of water. If you don't keep your eye out the front of the canal and keep your eye to the front of the boat, if you look left or right, your canal, your canal boat's going to hit the bank. It's going to come aground. Same when you learn to drive. You know, I mean, I've, I've driven, I don't know how long now, we're 40 years, been on the road driving various places. My wife will say to me, look at this and look at that. I don't see any of it. Honestly. I've driven for hundreds and hundreds of miles in America. People say to me, how do you like America? I said, I don't know, I've never seen it. All I've seen is road, tarmac and churches. That's all I've seen. From Wisconsin in the north to Florida in the south. That's all I've seen. Is roads and churches. Because my head is looking out to the front. I don't look to the left. I don't look to the right. I certainly ought not to look behind. Other than through the mirror, of course. And so it is with the Lord Jesus. You start with him and you determine, I'm starting and I'm not looking back. You just simply burn your bridges. It's all or nothing. There's no half measure, no reserve, no looking back. I wonder, are you saying, well, Lord, I'll come to you, but wait a minute, I've got something going on back here, first of all. Well, that's not the way you come to him. That's Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife in the Bible? Even as judgment fell upon the city of Sodom, she looked longingly to that city. And God judged her and turned her into a pillar of salt. Are you looking back? You hear the call of Christ, are you looking back at your life and saying, well, I think I prefer that. You're looking back and saying, well, I've got some attachments back here that I'd rather not let go of. Because if you're doing that, you'll never be saved. You'll never be seen. You know, during the Spanish colonization of the Americas, the Spanish conquistador, uh, Herman Cortes, landed on the shores of Mexico with a small force of just 700 soldiers. Knowing that his army might be quickly overrun by the natives, the Spanish commander did an interesting thing. He purposely set fire to his fleet, 11 ships in all, were burning in the sea as his men stood on the seashore. As they watched their only means of retreat going up in smoke and sinking to the bottom of the sea, they knew that with no means of retreat, there was only one direction to move, forward into the Mexican interior, facing whatever might come their way. And so, friends, it is with a man or a woman who commits to Christ, you burn your bridges. You say, I'm done with my old life. I'm done with the old connections. 
I'm done with the old way. I'm committing to Christ. And whatever comes in following him comes. You repent. You turn from your sins. And you trust the Lord Jesus. That's the idea. And there is no turning back. We sang the old chorus many a year ago. We sang it even yet. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me. The cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Well, what about it tonight? Are you just a wannabe convert? Are you going to be the real deal and say tonight, tonight, this night, I'm going to surrender my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.